Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. According to the American Film Institute's top 100 movie quotes of all time, that line comes in at number 29. Right before Greta Garbo's I Want to Be Alone, and right after Ingrid Bergman's Play It Sam, Play As Time Goes By. Well, welcome to I Was There Too. This is the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. My name is Matt Gorley. And that same line also comes in at number one on the hundred most unintelligible lines from a podcast theme song. Which podcast? Ha, this one. That's right. I get more email about what lyric comes after the words, It's been said, in the I Was There Too theme song. Well, it's You Can't Handle the Truth. The line from today's film, A Few Good Men, written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Rob Reiner, and today's guest from that film is the great Josh Molina. You may also know him and love him from In the Line of Fire, Sports Night, The West Wing, Larry Sanders Show, and Scandal. Now let's connect him to last episode's guest. Here we go. Adam Bush to Danny Aiello in The Professional to Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis in Hudson Hawk, a movie which... Just between you and me, I kind of liked. Bruce Willis, Wells. hell, he was married to Demi Moore. Demi Moore to Josh Molina in A Few Good Men. Well, that's not how this game is played. You can't use marriages. Well, my podcast, my rules. Now let's get to this interview, because it was a fun one. And Josh was a pleasure to have in my microphone. <laughs> Come out of the microphone, Josh. It's time to start the interview. Here we go. The film, A Few Good Men, The Year, 1992, The Role, Tom, The Actor, Joshua Molina. Well, Josh Molina, you've had already a storied career from uh, films like A Few Good Men to In the Line of Fire to the Aaron Sorkin classics, Sports Night, The West Wing to Scandal. But I want to start with what I 
understand to be your first uh, job in the industry, and that was as production assistant on the film Fletch Lives. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, let's see. My dad was partners with a guy named Bruce Bodner, great guy, who worked with Chevy Chase and uh, told me that uh, you know he could arrange for me to to, to get a job on the film. <laughs> And I had the, you know, attitude of, I knew I wanted to be an actor, um, but, you know, I I don't even know how film set works. Uh, Let's do that. Did you have much interaction with Chevy Chase? Yes. uh, Chevy couldn't have been nicer. Very nice guy. Um, I also, to date, wrote my only word to make it into a movie as a PA. Uh, I can't remember where we were. I'm sure I was, you know, by the coffee machine, which is largely uh, what I did. A lot of copies and made a lot of coffee. And, you know, I think running joke in the Fletch movies is that his middle name starts with M. Uh-huh. And uh, he always gives uh, various pseudonyms yeah. for what the M or, or an M Fletcher. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. right. So he's walking by and Chevy goes, uh, Josh, what's a, tell me a funny M name that's not Molina. And so I, I, I said, Mahatma. He said, I'm going to use it. And, and it made and it, it, in? it made it into the movie. Oh, yeah. man. Very I love exciting. Uncovering little gems like this is yes. what this show is all and about. And then I instantly retired as a, as a film writer. <laughs> were, were you just a production assistant or were you a writer's assistant? Or I was you... a, no, I was just a PA. And literally, make coffee, uh, make copies. Eventually, my responsibilities uh, came to involve pick up the DP and – Maybe somebody else. Because I remember a lot of um, very, very early morning. I had a car. My folks had given me, I think, their the old Chevy Caprice. Uh-huh. I would go and I'd have to at like 4 or 4.15 in the morning go pick up uh, the DP and drive him to the set in Queens, um, Kaufman Astoria Studios. And I remember at the time I was still getting over a heartbreak. So I'd oh. get up an extra half hour early. I'd sit on the hood of my car and just cry. To, seriously? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was as I was waiting. I'd get there. I'd park and wait for the guy to come Hold down. On. But I'd get there really early. Yeah. Hold on. Before we I'm even trying to paint get... the most pathetic picture I possibly can. <laughs> Did you schedule that half hour or you just couldn't sleep? Or you went, I need I to cry? I didn't want to appear to have just cried when I saw the guy. Oh my so I'd God. get there even a little earlier so I could cry, <laughs> dry my tears, air dry my tears, and then uh, pick up the guy. I, I don't even know what to say. No, this is best, so endearing and charming. It's just best to move on. Well, it's one thing that you're getting over a heartbreak while you're working on Fletch Lives. It's another thing that you build that into your day to sort of give it its due. That's the smartest way I've ever heard to get over a heartbreak. Right. Give it like it's almost like work time. You need to schedule it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you're just learning life tips on this show. That is true. Oh and then on God. the other end of the day, eventually my duties – or maybe from the beginning. I can't quite remember. They would take – the footage that had been shot that day, the, uh, and give it to me, to me. I was, you know, I don't know, 22, uh, not super, even even emotionally mature. <laughs> I had cried all morning. Uh, they'd give me all the footage, and I'd have to drive to Newark Airport to, for, to be sent to L.A. to be processed and then sent back so they could watch dailies the next day, which sounds incredibly old school, which I guess it was because yeah. it was probably 1988. Um, and... I remember thinking, I've got, I've got to be the least responsible person on this entire set. Why are they giving me the most precious cargo, which is what they shot all day? And then I drive to Newark Airport. There was no way to do it legally. I would park illegally. I had just sheaves of uh, parking tickets from that uh, those three months, and then and I'd and I'd have to do 
Maybe somebody wanted the film Lost. Like they were Possibly. just going, this is a, a sequel that, yeah, it, yeah. it might have been. So, wow, you have a charmed career in your first job ever. You're contributing to the writing process. It was and, very exciting. Oh, my God. I also remember eventually, you know, there's somebody has to man the the bell, which is like, you know, we're rolling, and they buzz everyone on the stage nose. And I, the, when they finally gave me that, and I was excited to sort of get on the set and on the stage itself, um, they allowed me to do that, and... Uh, I sort of had my head in my hand during the take. Weeping. And uh, I slipped and I hit the buzzer in the middle of a take. God. And that is frowned upon. Yeah. That was really embarrassing. Well, why were you getting all these jobs? I picture you in a suit and tie but one of those 80s white collar shirts and like wire rim glasses and they went, this guy looks responsible. I, no, I think it was more casual than that. I, th- I don't know. I was, it, was, it was bottom of the totem pole stuff. Wow, still, yeah. man, you rose quickly. Bro, oh, yeah. And then you're, you're right into it as an actor because uh, your first film role is A Few Good Men. Am I right about that? Is that is true, yes. Okay, so let's go back now. You've uh, worked with Aaron Sorkin quite a bit. So how did you come to be associated first with the play, right? Yes. Well, first with Aaron. Okay. Altogether. It started on a personal note. Yeah, I, I heard grew- a little of something about you possibly saving his life. There's that too. Okay. But even prior to that, we became buddies – I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, in the suburbs, uh, 45 minutes north of the city. He grew up in Scarsdale, which is a few minutes away, also in Westchester. He went to high school with my dear cousins, Joel Stewart and Rachel, and he, I saw him in high school plays. Oh, my God. I saw him in Godspell. What? Who was he playing? Ensemble? Judas? He played Judas or Jesus. Whichever well, one. He was you great. know, they're the same. Essentially, yeah, essentially two sides of the same coin. <laughs> Um, uh, so I knew him a little bit when I graduated from college, knowing that I wanted to be an actor from a very young age, my mother, as Jewish mothers do, suggested I call Aaron, I think largely because he's also Jewish. Uh, I remember thinking, the, the this network. Is, you think this is, yeah, you think this is going to work? I'm just going to cold call Jews until I'm an actor. <laughs> but for lack of a better plan, I actually did call Aaron. And, you know, he was a poker player. He used to host poker games. And so we became friends over these weekly, sometimes twice weekly poker games. Because you're an avid poker player, right? I In am, fact, you had indeed. a show, the Poker Showdown. That's true, Celebrity, Celebrity Poker, poker Showdown. Showdown. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so we became friends across the poker table. I don't think I even, I knew him as an actor. Um, Somewhere in this poker phase, he explained to me that he had been writing and that he had had written this play, A Few Good Men, and did I want to audition? And I was desperate to try to find, I was like, of course I do. And then I'm sure largely due to his urging, I was actually cast in the play. And I had grown up dreaming of being on Broadway. So that was an utter dream come true. And were you playing the same role, Tom? Originally, I played, there were five of us who played very small roles and understudied the leads. And I understudied three of the main parts. We all had, we all had little bits to do, little bits of, you know, I probably had six lines of dialogue throughout the play. Act two was largely standing at parade rest in the courtroom, (laughs) uh, which was physically harrowing. Um, and we would move little furniture around and ah, the, then the I, yeah. theater scene change, yeah, exactly. the fluid theater scene right. change. Before we even move on, if, if you're interested in Aaron Sarkin as an actor, he's in A Few Good Men at the bar talking to a woman when they pan across. Good eye, has, good yeah, catch. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk about your role specifically in the film. So sure. first of all, uh, how long were you doing the play I did the play, the entire Broadway run, which was about 15 months. Uh-huh. It was a, so the dream come true. The last six months, I played P.F.C. Downey, the the uh, oh the one of the two defendants, the, the white guy, the slower one. <laughs> yes, of the exactly. Two. Yeah. I sort of had a choice to, uh, where I could um, 
after the, I guess the first six months of the run and people left, um, they said, do you want to, I had been understudying Sam Weinberg, the Kevin Pollack role in the movie, uh-huh. Mark Nelson on Broadway, um, uh, Corporal Howard, um, who was uh, Jeffrey Knopf's on Broadway, and Noah Wiley in the movie, uh-huh. and uh, PFC Downey, uh, Michael Dolan in the play, and James... James Marshall. James Marshall. I wanted to say James Marshall. I wish I had. Um, yeah. So and they and so they basically said, "Do you want to play Corporal Howard or uh, PFC Downey?" And I felt like Corporal Howard had like a funny one, funny comic great scene where everybody claps when you leave. Um, and but I was amazed they were offering me, "Do you want to play this yeah. sort of corn-fed Iowa?" It uh, seems like the media role. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, <laughs> it was like I, I always thought of myself as a comic actor, so I couldn't even believe they were offering me. I'm like, oh, I'll do that one, not really thinking through the fact that I could either do the role um, who is on stage for the entire play, much of it uh, being on trial for murder and not saying anything about it, <laughs> or being the guy who has one really funny role and leaves <laughs> and hangs out backstage. You could be drinking, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in the tour, I would uh, ultimately play Howard. but I, So I played PFC Downey. Got the opportunity to audition for that role in the movie because um, Rob Reiner, I think, from the beginning wanted to make it into a movie. Aaron Sorkin, to his credit, uh, part of the contract was, I, it's really, a, this is a play. I want it to be a play produced on Broadway, and then we'll make the movie. And so that's how it happened. I flew out to L.A. Aaron, um, either screwing with me or making an honest mistake, said, now, you, you, there's Two Beverly's. There's a Beverly Drive and there's a Beverly Boulevard. So remember, Castle Rock is on Beverly Boulevard. Oh, no. Of course, Castle Rock is on Beverly Drive. So (laughs) I'm just – and this is the day. The Thomas Guide, no GPS, nobody – Siri's not helping me find this audition. So I've flown out to L.A. on my own dime to audition and I'm just driving back and forth on Beverly Boulevard. Where's Castle Rock? Uh, This this makes me cringe. That was terrible. How late were you? Uh, I want to say 45 minutes oh. drenched in sweat. I remember pounding the roof of my car. I damaged it. I was just like, damn it, damn it. What? Uh, I was so mad. I was like, this is my only chance. I've completely blown it. Uh, Were you auditioning specifically for Downey or Howard? For or? Downey. Okay. Ultimately, uh, they didn't seem to care much. They brought me in, although I was a disheveled, sweaty mess. Um I didn't get the part. It went to James Marshall, uh-huh. as previously mentioned. Um, but they tossed me the, the you know, remember Aaron saying, well, we got you something and you're going to play Tom. Tom is the guy who, you know, has five words, three oh. of them yes, two of them sir. We're going to talk about Tom. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to get in deep. Yeah. It's going to be wrong. Oh, how long after the play was the film? Did you hmm. go right into that or did you? You toured for a while after the Broadway production. Yeah, but that was after the film. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh. The film happened between, could be making that up. No, I'm not. Yeah, no, the film happened shortly after the play closed in 1990. Okay. I think so that's the, when we the, shot yeah, it. Yeah, the film is 92. Yes, that makes yeah. sense. We shot it in 1991, I guess. You're the only actor from the play to be in the film? That or could it? be true. Yeah. That might be true. All right. So let's talk about Tom. Okay. Okay. When Jack Nicholson calls you in the room, you enter so quickly that it cannot be that you're just standing by the door. You have to have your hand on the knob and your ear <laughs> to the door. Like This just... is probably this is probably a critique of my performance. <laughs> or editing. It could be editing. Yes. Actually I learned very important uh I, I learned about editing. This was I mean, I was as green as green could be. Um and so yeah, the situation is that Jack Nicholson calls me in. Tom, I come in, I say, Sir. And he says, we're surrendering our position in Cuba. Get the president on the phone. We're surrendering our position in Cuba. 
And I go, yes, sir. And I start to leave. And then he stops me because he's being sarcastic. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Let me give maybe we should think this through a little bit more. And then he sends me off and I leave. So first, I guess we're doing, you know, his coverage, the more important aspects of the scene. And it was a lot of fun. J.T. Walsh and Kiefer Sutherland yeah. and Jack Nicholson. I'm watching all these great actors work, um, which is fascinating. And they're nice. And Nicholson uh, – Every time he walks by me, he's, he gives me – he's like, oh, Tom. Oh, Tom, Tom. Does I'm he like, ever call you a kid? It was, no, he called Just me Tom. Just Tom. Tom. Right. And it was, like, it was like Nicholson doing Nicholson for me. And I was like, that is spot on. Um, but he was nice. You, you know, he kind of took me in. I, I remember everyone being sort of friendly. Then when it was time to do my single, which is essentially me at the door coming in, saying, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, leaving, um, Nicholson did his entire spiel off camera which was a great lesson that I've carried. You will do that now? Well, oh, well yeah. I mean, I get now that that's half your job. Half yeah. your job is is doing your lines when you're not on camera. Um, although I've worked with people, you know, sometimes who disappear. And yeah, they, and you wouldn't yeah. expect that of Jack Nicholson, especially for some, something as that's small as this. That's what I thought, exactly. Yeah. I literally, my lines are, yes, sir, and he has a whole spiel to do, and he is Jack Nicholson. So I thought, you know, I didn't expect him to stand off camera and, like, feed me so I could do. Yeah, it's not so, like yeah. you're crying in a monologue. You just have to say yes. Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I was impressed by that and struck by, like, that's, that's a professional. And then the first time I did, he goes, uh, you know, Tom, I, I poke my head in, sir, sir, call the president, we're surrendering our position. Cube. Yes, sir. I start to leave. Does the thing. No, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe we should reconsider it. You can get you, you, dismissed. Yes, sir. I leave. Cut. And I hear uproarious laughter. Rob Reiner and Nicholson are laughing and laughing. And then my head starts swimming. I can't, I don't, I don't know what. I said yes, sir, twice. I don't know what is going on. I will subsequently find out that they just – they got a kick out of the fact – I didn't – I really approached – I didn't think I was really even acting. I don't know. I was saying yes, sir, closing it. But Nicholson's like, yeah, you know, I give him this ridiculous order. He's a Marine. He just – he doesn't <laughs> question it. That's what I have it. written right he here. He doesn't question it. He just goes there and whatever. So I'm like, wow, I'm killing it. You are I'm the paragon <laughs> of military obedience because not only do you accept the fact that he wants you to call the president and surrender to Cuba, but – when he says it's a joke, you still just go, okay. Right, you, exactly. I mean, this guy. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't know that I thought deeply <laughs> about the role, but maybe it was from playing a, uh, a Marine for hundreds of performances on Broadway, but it just seemed to me that that was the scene. But when you hear Nicholson explain what he thinks obedience should be in the military, specifically the Marines, right. you can see why he's chosen this guy who is literally unflinching in his acceptance of anything. I guess Walk so. off that cliff, Tom. <clears throat> yeah, I'm delighted to take credit yeah. for the for the performance. But here's the thing: the second take, my head is now swimming with like, I'm, I'm on fire. I'm <laughs> killing it. I don't know if, if I'm even entirely exactly sure, but so my head is still so I'm so fulfilled with the experience that the second take, Tom, yeah, 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 yes sir, uh, call the president, we're surrendering our position in Cuba. I go, yes sir, but I don't start to leave. And I'm like, oh, now I'm thinking, oh, I fucked up. <laughs> I didn't leave. I got two things to do, say yes, sir, and start to leave. And now there's just a weird stalemate because it doesn't occur to me, green as I am, that there's editing. You know, just start to leave now. Oh, yeah. Like, we right. cut around it. Yeah. So I just stand there like a dolt <laughs> staring at him. Waiting for cut. And Reiner's like, cut. And, you know, it's literally like from hero to goat. He's like, yeah, Josh, so 
You're supposed to start to leave. <laughs> and and do they? They're probably sitting there thinking he wants more screen time. Yeah, maybe what exactly. Doing? What do yeah. you think? This He's got something planned. Yeah, yeah. Oh so it's years later. I, I blush to think of it. But uh, when when you're doing something that's this is your first film role, sure. and in my limited acting experience, everything it, your nerves are so heightened that everything's milky and. Something as simple as opening a door. For some reason, coming through a door as your first thing in a scene is one of the most difficult things to it do. It was because, for me because yeah. there's also clearly there's a place where they want you to open the door. That's the second part. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure. I don't remember exactly, but having opened doors since, there's usually a line or a little piece of tape. Open it only to here or they put down a sandbag so you can feel where you where to – there's a lot to it. Yeah. So, yeah. And then also perhaps counterintuitively, the smaller your role – I think the more difficult it, it is. No kidding. Because you just start, and I've played tiny roles where you have one line and all, you know, you think through every possible word you can emphasize, or I could say it this yeah. way and I could do that. You're bogged down with the minutiae. Like doing a scene like that where you have to open a door and then land on a mark is to me like um, like when you take your driver test at the DMV. You can drive normally and you're fine, but when you have something like under that much scrutiny, it becomes impossible. Yes, it's so strange. Yes. And speaking of which, the first time I had to drive a car in film was also a nightmare, and that was uh, in the line of fire. Oh, yeah. I don't oh. know if we want to go there. Oh, we'll get there. That's uh, after the break. I've got some questions <laughs> for you there too, in fact, specifically about that. But speaking of coverage, so when you are, are doing uh, some – involved scene and they're doing the other person's coverage and you're off camera and you're giving them everything. Have you ever had the circumstance where you've given your best performance and you weren't even on camera? All the time. (laughs) All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I like to go, I think I prefer to be, to go last. You know, usually the last, whoever's the, you know, the big shot in the scene, you know, do you want to go now? You want to go first? Or if it's super emotional, um, They'll usually want that person to go first uh-huh. so they don't have to do, you know, be super emotional off camera right. for 20 takes and then, you know, bring the tears uh, on camera. Um, so, yeah, my, I would say I'd rather go second because I feel like I find stuff as I'm running the scene. I'd rather be off camera running the scene and then, then turn around and maybe I'll, I'll know what I'm doing. Yeah. But, yeah, all the time I go, oh, now I get it. That's like everything, you know, everything I've ever shot on the way to the car. And every audition, on the way to the car, I'm like, ah, now I know how to do the scene. Yeah, everything is a rehearsal. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Before we take a break, I do want to talk about uh, this famous incident with Aaron Sorkin. And is this legendary, is this real, where you performed the Heimlich maneuver on Uh, him? I did indeed. And years later would receive out of the blue a certificate from uh, Dr. Heimlich himself. What? (laughs) Attesting that, yeah. He He just goes around delivering I guess. I don't know. He probably saw it on IMDb and I have it somewhere. Uh, Yeah, that is true. During the Broadway run, (laughs) one of the small perks of being in a Broadway show is uh, uh, you get to participate in the Broadway Bowling League, which is – about as glamorous as it sounds. You know, one night a week, the guys from A Few Good Men bowl against the cast of A Chorus Line, and you have fun, and you see who wins, and I guess you keep track of stats. And so one of these nights, we were bowling, and Aaron, uh, in what was a typically magnanimous gesture, bought like a huge tray of hamburgers for everyone. And then it was his turn to bowl, and he sort of, with a flourish, took an enormous bite of hamburger, um, well, as he's about to bowl, like right before he's going to bowl, defiant. Like, I don't know what it was. But it was kind of look at this, <laughs> um, and then he started to choke. <laughs> then he started to choke on. Well, it. that seems somewhat uh, karmic, perhaps. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but for a while, 
and this is very, I guess, I think Dick Sean died this way. Thought you, was, you thought he was joking. Yes, yeah, and yeah. we were sort of laughing yeah. and looking at him, and then he hit the ground. Oh, my God. And his eyes were bulgy, and we kind of looked at each other like, I think this is real. <laughs> and I don't know that I'm generally good in a crisis, but I just had the impulse. Well, you were the one, clearly, the first one. I was the one. Uh, although I remember my friend Pete later would say, yeah, I was about to do that. Mm, yeah, sure. Right? But you didn't. Yeah, no, you didn't. <laughs> Um, Where were you, Pete? So, yeah, I kind of picked him up. I got behind him. I didn't really know what I was doing. I cracked two or three of his ribs. This is um, something because you've probably seen it on TV and that sort of thing? I or? think I had seen a poster in the back of a restaurant. <laughs> There's like three things. Get behind them. You ball your fist. You put your hand over it. And I encourage everybody to familiarize yourself with the Heimlich maneuver. Well, clearly you don't sure. need to. And then you go from behind, you know, in and up and in and up. And my memory is I was just beating him up. I was just pounding, pounding. And I remember at the time thinking, like, he's going to die in my arms. Oh my and, but then this, this, you know, giant thing shot out of his. And what was the aftermath? Did... The aftermath was almost as good. Um, uh, I'm not going to reveal names, but one dear friend instantly had diarrhea. <laughs> from just the nerves <laughs> of the system? Yeah, like, oh I got to run. <laughs> Literally. And Aaron, <laughs> after after a lot of like huffing and puffing, like wow, what just happened? Aaron decided to continue bowling. Okay. And did is it a Fred Flintstone thing? He did the thing where he ran up and went whoop and landed on his back. Oh. He lost his feet and like fell on his back, and said, "I think I'm done." <laughs> Maybe that's what cracked his ribs. Also possible. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, we all went home, and it was that was like that, you know. Oh. And in a perhaps not unrelated note, I've gone on to appear in most things that Aaron has written since then. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't um, want to say that. No. Why. No. He's it's a, a combination he, of talent He was already a good friend saving. of mine. Sure. Well, it's really more a combination of friendship and maybe a little life-saving. <laughs> yeah. Did you get any kind of glimpse at Nicholson's process? Was it pretty much just uh, stand and deliver? Or? It seemed like a, a light switch. Really? On and off, Yeah. I didn't see any psyching himself into anything. I didn't see after cut much of a change of a return back to Jack. I think he's one of those guys who just completely has it. Or certainly at least in that role, I think he so owned it that uh, at least when I worked with him, it was just there and it was on and off. And there was no, you know, he didn't demand anything of you. He wasn't pretending to be in character when we weren't filming. He just turned it on and off. It was like that was like a real room of. It was fun to watch those guys too. They all they, you could see the mutual respect I'm and sure. sort of old pro camaraderie of it all. And how was Rob Reiner? He seems like he would be very I don't know welcoming and couldn't have been nicer. Subsequently worked with him on the American President too. So he he also was very you save his life good to me. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no no. Um, so yeah, he was very very nice, very easy, funny guy. I love to hear that. I love yeah. to hear when there's a good environment on the set. That's great. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk about In the Line of Fire. All right, Clint Eastwood, Rene Russo, Josh Malkovich. I know, I know. God, 
What's the deal with him? I've got a, I've got a oh, anecdote about him. Give it. <laughs> Before we even get to you, just just tease us with a little Malkovich. Uh, not that nice to me. <laughs> really? I now I heard he spent a month in isolation preparing for this role. Is that even real? That that I would believe because <laughs> uh, because I found myself in an elevator with him early on. We shot downtown at the Bonaventure yeah. think, hotel, yeah. and so our. You know, instead of a trailer, we each had a little hotel room, which was fantastic. And I found myself in the... Was it the glass elevator you were in with him? I, but perhaps it was. Oh, I believe it was. So, so that people could witness my disgrace. And I'm not the kind of like, hey, ho kind of guy, but I thought, I'm actually in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, I should be able to say, it's you know, valid. I wouldn't walk up to this guy in a sidewalk. Uh, and also what I'm going to say is going to be nice. So I said... Mr. Malkovich, I'm sure I called him Mr. Malkovich. Uh, you know, it's nice to meet you. I'm playing Agent Chavez. I saw you last summer or whatever, three years ago. I drove cross country with my sister. We stopped in Chicago. I had seen him in a play. I complimented his performance. They did a whole thing. Super respectful, super nice. And then he just turned to me and said, Oh. Oh. <laughs> And again, to reference Fred Flintstone, you know, he, when he's really embarrassed in his face, yeah. he turns like three inches tall. I did that in the elevator, uh, and then I just scurried out of the elevator. Oh, that, no, that's that's too bad. Yeah. You know, I, do you think that was just him, or was he in some kind of character? Were you guys heading to the I shoot? I think or? in retrospect, he may have been in character the, oh. always. He was one of no, those guys. Because yeah. yeah. then I saw him during free time making weird little sketches. And I think it was just sort of, yeah. I think oh. I was, I think Mr. Malkovich wasn't in that elevator with me. Right. That would be in <laughs> yeah. line with his character, too. Right. Yeah. Doesn't want to be found out. He yeah. probably doesn't there like you people go. identifying him. Right. He probably, he maybe he had his weird little wooden gun in his pocket. That's right. And thought I might ask about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> then he'd have to kill you. You almost got killed. That's true. Yeah. He was going around killing anybody that asked about that. Um, so at one point you're driving Clint Eastwood around. You're driving him to the airport, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I even uh, go back and say how I getting the job? Please, oh, please, yes. I auditioned, I guess, on tape for the role. And then I got the, the follow-up call from my agents. Uh, uh, Wolfgang Peterson, the director, would like to meet you. Oh. I was like, fantastic. Oh, and also they think you're Latino. I'm like, what are you talking about? Your name does have a Latino ring to it. Exactly. Yeah. And the role is Agent Chavez. But it's it, Polish, right, your name? I am, in fact, Polish-Jewish. Yeah. Uh, Melina is the Polish word for raspberry. <clears throat> I'm not Latino, nor am I comfortable lying about my ethnicity. So I said to my agents, "What? why are you telling me that now? What, you could have told me beforehand hey, we're going to submit you and lie about your ethnicity. And I would have said, oh, no, don't do that. I'm not comfortable with that. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm just not, I'm not going to they, they were like, fine, I'm sure it won't come up. Then just don't yeah. bring it up. Yeah. I'm like, fine. I walk in the door. <laughs> I meet Wolfgang Peterson. We sit down. He goes, yeah, so what's your ethnicity? Oh, my God. <laughs> On top of it, with the German accents, I'm like, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I'm Jewish. Well, now Polish, he can't Jewish. refuse you. Maybe you know? that's why I ultimately got it, because yeah. I put him in a position. Um, but yeah, so apparently they were looking <laughs> to cast somebody Latino in this Latino role, although it was just really a name. Of course, but you're the L.A. guy, right? So you've got to be Hispanic. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Exactly. But this is a, a becoming a developing theme on this podcast, because Jeanette Goldstein, who plays um, um, Vasquez in Aliens, ah. is a Jewish actor as well, and she doesn't have any... Uh, Hispanic heritage in her whatsoever. So I don't know. There's something going on there. Something something weird. <laughs> so uh, you, you 
you're basically the head of the Secret Service in Los Angeles. I mean, the way they kind of have you running Do the I show seem there. That high and you're just yeah. a young man. Young buck. You've young really bang. done well for yourself. Yeah. All around, so. you always have a charmed career, whether you're playing the character or it's you. Although, ultimately, I am driving. <laughs> Clint Eastwood to the airport. Well, you're I don't a hands-on leader. Yeah, exactly. Hands-on. You want, you no, control, I'll do it. I'm going to do this. <laughs> How was it driving Eastwood around? I somehow imagine him to be like a backseat driver or something. What was he like? He couldn't have been nicer in the entire process. I have found people like Nicholson, like Eastwood, um, uh, even in these super limited capacity roles that I'm playing around them, I find them to be very, very nice. There's a certain level at which there's nothing to prove. They don't have to, you know, there's yeah. no dick on the table kind of thing. <laughs> can you say that? Yeah, um, you sure can. You know, they're they're big stars already. Uh-huh. So sometimes it's like two or three levels down. That's where the real the assholes, the that's where they work, yeah. exactly. And they have yeah. to have something to prove and they want to make knock you down. So neither were like, Clint Eastwood, I remember talking about cat allergies with him. <laughs> Really? Yeah, he was just like he'd sit and he'd talk about whatever came up. And also, I definitely learned a little bit about acting on film there because he would speak almost inaudibly. <laughs> you know, and you know, later I'd watch the performance and it was great. But at the time, I was thinking, my turn to speak? <laughs> so he's just Did he you? just knows he's going to be ADR'd the whole time, or what? I don't know if it's that or you know they, they those microphones yeah. will get it. But yeah. he does so little that it's almost like, are you still awake? And did you say your line? <laughs> and then you watch it, and it's like, wow, that works. So like that guy is cool. You don't really have to do much oh, uh, on camera. That's a good and, lesson. Yeah. And so when I had to drive him, I was I was a little <laughs> bit nervous because. Um, I had to drive very precisely. Yeah. I had to hit two little sandbags they'd put down. Is this your first time driving on camera? First time driving uh-huh. on camera. I have to hit the sandbags, let him out. He'll come around to the passenger side, and we'll talk about how you spell ukulele, right, which is basically right. the scene. Yeah. Um, and so the first time I uh, – we, we do the first take. I drive in and – 0.7 miles an hour. <laughs> I feel the sandbags. I stop. He gets out. We do the scene. And I hear, cut. And uh, Wolfgang Peterson runs up. He goes, yeah. Uh, it's a little wimpy. It's the, a little wimpy. The driving? Yeah. He's like, you're a Secret Service agent. You know, you're, 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 you're a little more ballsier. You get in there, pull in, and you do the scene. I'm like, okay. So, of course, I overcompensate. <laughs> and I drive way too fast on the second take. I hit the sandbags. There's sort of I see Clint Eastwood kind of seesawing back and forth a little bit. And he finally settles, gets out. We do the scene. So he doesn't break. He just no. Did, yeah, we do the scene. God bless him. Yeah. And dirty uh, Harry for crying exactly. Out yeah. Right. He can take a little uh, a hard stop or two. Yeah. And uh, I hear cut. And that, I don't think it was Wolfgang Peterson. Someone else comes over. The first AD comes over and starts really bitching me out. They're like, what are you doing? This is the star of our movie. You're driving like a fucking maniac. What are you got? What are... Clint Eastwood walks over. He goes, now, wait a minute. This would be better if I did a better Clint Eastwood. That's but not so bad. imagine Clint That's Eastwood. That's not bad. Wait a minute. Director of this film just called this man a wimp. Of course he's going to get in there and he's going to drive. And I was like, what? Clint Eastwood saving my job. Shaming the first AD, but all in the name of masculinity. Yeah, exactly. Completely, exactly. Yeah, 
If oh my god, anytime you get emasculated in life, if you had Clint Eastwood to just would be step fair, in exactly. and defend your yeah, manhood, it was a little bit like the Marshall McLuhan moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I happen to have Clint Eastwood here. Clint, can you explain why? I, yeah, so that was very very nice of him. That's like that. I won't go through the whole thing, but that famous story that Jay Thomas would tell on Letterman every year, where he gets into an accident, but he's a hippie at the time, but he's driving Clayton Moore dressed huh. as Lone Ranger around, <laughs> and the <laughs> guy that hits him. Uh, says, like, you hit me, and it wasn't true. And he's like, no, I didn't. And then he goes, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And the Lone Ranger gets out of the car and goes, I'll do something about it, citizen. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, there you go. That's my version. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, so you play, you play Will Bailey on the West Wing, and you uh, apparently were known for being quite a prankster on the set. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. yeah. I, Usually, I could see that. Yeah. yeah. It, well, you know, the hours are long. Things get boring. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, you start, uh, I remember usually uh, for a while you want to, uh, you feel like a guest and you get, you have to wait till you're comfortable on a set before you start actually antagonizing yeah. around, the rest w- of the Around people. what season is that for That's you? That's a good year? question. It might've been the end of the first season for me. Um, <laughs> I remember early on, it's the things that go badly that I tend to remember. I know that when... Uh, Mary McCormick joined the cast. We were working in Baltimore and D.C. And I knew that she hated bugs. And it was, I guess they have a pretty rough, like, cicada season oh, yeah. in D.C. Yeah. And it was uh, it was that season. And so she was sitting on a bench somewhere, and I just took a little twig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how you lightly touch someone's ear? Because I knew she was all... Didn't, cicada, is that what they're called? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I knew she was all revved up about these things. And I touched her ear with this twig, and she burst out crying. <laughs> she was, I think she was pregnant at the time, too. Aww. So there was sort of a, there was a hormonal element to it all. And crying and crying and crying, which is, you know, not what I had in mind. Yeah, yeah. And not what the people who wanted her to film a scene and look like she was not crying had in mind. Oh, my God. So I got a little blowback there. But that, yeah, that's partially <laughs> circumstances you can't control. I mean, sure. That reaction is a little disproportional. That is true. Another time I we were filming an episode that takes place on Air Force One, and Alice and Jenny had to keep um, answering the phone. So I coated the phone in a proprietary mix of Vaseline and suntan lotion. Um, I got in trouble for that. You really got in trouble? <laughs> yeah, because she got an earful and maybe a wigful oh, that day. She yeah. might have been wearing something, and it was all over her. And it was like, well, now we have to shut down production for a while while we clean up your joke. You're costing money at so, this yeah, point. yeah, that wasn't good. You stole uh, Bradley Whitford's um, letterhead and sent Jimmy Smith's some flowers, right? <laughs> that is true. Janelle Maloney and I did this. I got to cut her in. We had the idea for Valentine's Day. I think Jimmy had just joined the cast a couple, three weeks earlier. And I would routinely, if I could get into Brad Whitford's trailer, if it were left open and he weren't there, I would just kind of root around for what might come in handy. He also used to write very weirdly life-affirming messages on Post-its around his mirror. Really? And I would amend those to be less life-affirming. <laughs> Do you remember an example? By mm, I wish I did. Um, I, th- I remember a couple that I don't think I want to share. No, fair enough. <laughs> um, but I also found some Brad Whitford stationery 
Years later, Jimmy Kimmel would suggest to me that it's also easy to make up stationery with anyone's name on it. Oh, <laughs> you don't actually have to find <laughs> – you can just go to a place and say, I need some – this is what I need. And and say, I appreciate your yeah. authenticity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got the real deal. Yeah. And so we, we wrote a sort of lightly homoerotic valentine from, um, uh, from Brad to Jimmy Smits, and we had like – Three dozen roses delivered to uh, Jimmy on set with a note. You know, we've only—it's only been a couple of weeks together, but boy, do I like working with you. I think this relationship. You know, <laughs> it was really finely. I wish I had, you know, saved it or written down. It was, and I wasn't there for it, but I understand it was incredibly awkward. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, Jimmy Smith very quickly wanted to assert his heterosexuality. <laughs> he was like, Brad, oh man, the flowers, they're, they're nicer than what I gave my girl. <laughs> I have a Whom girl. I make love to exactly, every night of the exactly. week, now, twice on Sundays. Yeah, uh, two days later, Brad came to me. He was like, very funny. Very oh, funny. Oh. Uh, but Jimmy Smith's uh, never knew. <laughs> I don't know. A great amount of time passed. And like six months later, we were yucking it up in the makeup trailer about how funny that was. And Jimmy was like, that was you? Um, and my Jimmy Smith does sound a lot like my Clint Eastwood. Uh, I'll grant you that. Uh, yeah, and he was mad. I was oh, like, dude, no, I didn't know you didn't on. know. I thought everybody knew. So it was six months of like, you thought someone had made fun of him, and he wouldn't shake my hand. I was like, dude, just kidding, right? And he would not, would not extend his hand. Ultimately, we would achieve closure when the entire cast did the Ellen show. When the show was ending, when the whole series was wrapping up, and one of the things she did was she wheeled out cakes. There was a cake for each of us with our likeness, uh-huh. and uh, I and you can actually see this on YouTube. I saw and overheard Jimmy Smith lean over to Richard Schiff and say, "I'll give you five thousand dollars if you smash that in Josh's face." <laughs> and so I just ran off the set. It was towards the end, anyways. Clearly, like we were wrapping up, so I just started running. And Mary McCormick, perhaps getting me back for the cicadas, um, she kind of grabbed me. They all chased me, grabbed me, and Jimmy Smith, or I guess everybody kind of just pelted me with cake. I'm going to look for that it's clip there. on YouTube. Yeah. We'll post it on the episode page. So your hit rate for these practical jokes, at least the ones you've described, is zero. That's true. In terms yeah. of, of them going over well. Yeah, that's about right. Are you still doing these to this day? Yeah. Good oh, yeah. I've done stuff on Scandal. Good. Um, although ultimately I'm, I'm at the point where I've lost the trust of everybody on the show. Yeah, people and know you for this now? Yes, okay. exactly. So well, first of all, there's big, a there's big light on me on April Fool's Day. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is my day off. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything on April Fool's Day. Okay. Amateur. Yeah. Uh, but then I also did – I did a whole extended thing with – knowing that Jimmy Kimmel loves jokes, I sort of pitched in this idea that what if I convince everyone on the show that we're going to make a birthday video for you, but we'll pre-write the messages they're going to say so that we can edit them into saying really silly things. <laughs> And then Danny switched the wording around. Yeah, yeah. We wrote them so that we knew we could cut them. And then Danny Ricker is the head writer. I know Danny Ricker. Fantastic guy. Yeah. So on camera, I kind of took. I'm glad I can give credit here where credit is due because Danny Ricker and the writing staff of Jimmy Kimmel brilliantly, and I did add some. I helped too, but they really brilliantly came up with this stuff. Um, So. That we could get them to say ridiculous things. And, and it, they were brilliantly worded. The hard sell was trying to explain to them why we're going to make a, <laughs> a, a 
birthday video for Jimmy Kimmel in which I'm going to pre-write what you say. <laughs> and, but amazingly, the only person who blanched at that was Kerry Washington. She was like, I, I, just conceptually, can't I just say? I was like, no, 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 trust me. You have to say this. It's going to cut together funny. Um, and then you can actually see in her one, she was like, she's the only one who, she, she like made a choice. She's like, okay, well, but I'm going to do it like I'm pissed that you're making me uh-huh. say this. I'm like, fine. So in the ultimate thing, you can see she's doing a thing. The rest <laughs> of them just cows. They're like, okay. And they're doing it and selling it and making them do, uh, you know, multiple takes. I'm like, I know they missed an important word. I got it. <laughs> and then you can see that on YouTube too. And Okay. You know, it's Jeff Perry saying it hurts when I pee. And <laughs> we'll put both of those links up on the episode page. Oh, yeah, excellent. But yeah. everybody, uh, there was some back. Uh, the people weren't happy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've lived until you've been pranked by Josh Malone. Yeah, right? You're the new Clooney. Yeah, in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming on. I was there too. You're on uh, Twitter at Josh Malina, M A L I N A. Thank you. Thank you for spelling it. Well, I feel like I know you intimately, Josh. I feel the same way about you, Matt. Thank you. I do love the podcast. I'm excited to be on it. I'm excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. (laughs) I was there. What's in a name? Well, if you take my name, Matthew, that's the Hebrew for gift of God, ladies. And if you take Gourley, it's probably just some old Irish for people who made their wives out of peat moss ladies again moss ladies but i love a good name and i love it when any writer of a book or movie or play gives their characters some sort of interesting and original name and two of my favorites are the films bad news bears and dr strangelove and i think we might do kind of a versus here to see which has the best names it's not easy to come up with original names but these two films have something in common the names are evocative of, um, in this case, gross things, usually. And they're going for a little bit of um, feeling, and definitely, in the case of Dr. Strangelove, a sexual theme. So I'm going to take you through some of the characters' names, and the there's my cat. It, it's early in the morning, and if I'm sounding a little quiet, I don't... I'll see, I can't... Talk when the cat's going. It's there are two things that shouldn't be done before twelve in the morning, and that is podcasting and drinking. And I'm doing all three. Two. What? Let's start with the bad news bears. Right off the bat, your main character is named Coach Morris Buttermaker. That's not a real name. It probably is. Actually, you know what? Even Goldfinger's a real name. But it it just sounds slightly heightened and gross, but also delicious. Kind of like Walter Matthau himself, I think. And I mean that in the best way. Buttermaker. Just say it. Morris Buttermaker. Buttermaker. Say it out loud. Doesn't matter where you are. And then look at anybody that looks at you funny and stare them down till they look away. Buttermaker. But getting to the um, characters that have a little bit of, uh, let's say, body functionality, you've got Kelly Leak, played by Jackie Earl Haley, but not spelled like the vegetable. Leak is spelled like the actual bodily function, or damn function, if you want to keep it non-gross. But I would argue that's just the beginning of a theme, because there's also Tanner Boyle and Timmy Lupus. And there's no way to argue Lupus isn't referring to a blood disease, I think. Other characters are just fun to say, like Amanda Wurlitzer, 
and Ogilvy and Ingelberg. And then there's, of course, the lawyer who gets the team started in the first place who couldn't be more suburban and Caucasian, and his name is Bob Whitewood. <laughs> but as much as I love the names in Bad News Bears, I think this is really just a setup for probably the victor in this versus round of character names, and that's Dr. Strangelove. And namely, it's titular character Dr. Strangelove. Titular. Doesn't that sound dirty? Well, get ready, because that's just the tip of the titberg. Huh? The name Dr. Strangelove itself is strange and includes love. And it's really just a setup for all of these other names that are going to be strange and probably have something to do with love or sex. Let's go down this list. First of all, Peter Sellers plays three different characters in the film. Dr. Strangelove, President Merkin Muffley, which, if you dissect that, really has two wonderfully licentious names. Merkin, of course, is a wig, but not for your head. And Muffley is what that wig would become. Look, we're all adults here. We don't need to, to get all embarrassed. He also plays group captain Lionel Mandrake. Now, that one sounds all right on the surface, but the Mandrake route was an aphrodisiac back in the Renaissance. In fact, there's even um, a Commedia dell'arte play called The Mandrake, which is all about getting people all ready to go, all turned on and turgid. Turgid? You mean General Buck Turgidson, played by George C. Scott? That's right. Boner name. It's almost as if the film goes on, the names get more and more ridiculous and obvious. So you're starting with something a little bit more subtle like Mandrake, but then when you get to Sterling Hayden's part, it's Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. <laughs> Jack D. Ripper. So that implies the gross sexual murderer, but also Ripper itself has a bit of a bodily function feel, if you know where I'm going. And where I'm going is just that way, because Keenan Wynn plays Colonel Bat Guano. Bat shit. Crazy. This whole film is a wealth of amazing character names. Some of them aren't as on the nose, but they're still fun to say, like Slim Pickens' Major Kong, James Earl Jones in his first film appearance as Lieutenant Lothar Zog, and there's even a Mr. Staines and General Faceman. <laughs> and if it weren't enough, all of this action climaxes, no pun intended, in a location called Burpleson Air Force Base. Stanley Kubrick and... Stanley Kubrick intentional... Stanley Kub... Stanley Kubrick... Kubrick? Kubrick? Ah, oh, there's that liquid you again. I think it probably is Kubrick, but I feel too pretentious saying it like that. So bear with me if I just say Kubrick. It's the same with Max von Sydow. That sounds too fancy? Anyway, Kubrick originally intended Dr. Strangelove, based off the 1962 novel Red Alert, to be a serious drama. But the more he dove into it, the more he saw how ridiculous the concept of mutually assured destruction was and decided to turn it into a comedy. And then he decided to have a little fun with the names, as we did here today. I was there. Well, that's it for I Was There Too. My thanks to Joshua Molina. If you have someone you can connect me to, give me an email call at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. Leave a review and all that stuff, and see you next time on I Was There Too. Pop. Pop? Pop. Pop. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.